The History Channel original podcast. Very few people really know who Ulysses S. Grant was. He's been called so many things over the years. The greatest general of his time. A military genius. A bloody butcher. A corrupt president. A belligerent drunk who got lucky. This guy comes from nothing, rises to the highest ranks of the Union Army. Ulysses S. Grant, an unlikely hero, a man whose early life is marked by failure, whose doggedness and force of will would transform him into one of Abraham Lincoln's most trusted generals, the man who would lead the Union forces to victory in the Civil War and become the 18th President of the United States of America. From the History Channel, this is Making Grant. I'm Andre DeShields. I'm an actor, a performer, and a lover of American history. Fights bloody, terrible battles. With indomitable will. To save the Union. To heal his country. He's the unheroic hero of our greatest national epic, the American Civil War. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ulysses Grant is born in 1822 and grows up in the frontier town of Georgetown, Ohio, about 30 miles east of Cincinnati. He's the oldest of six and is raised in a pious and hard-working household. Grant's childhood, as he describes it, is uneventful. He helps with chores, he ice skates on the frozen pond, he fishes and swims in the summer, Grant's grandfather had fought in the War of Independence. His father, Jesse Grant, is a leather tanner, a trade young Ulysses detests. Jesse is outspoken and overconfident, brash, highly principled. Hannah Grant, serious and introverted, is more like their son. Ulysses' great love is horses. And while he's generally reserved, sensitive, and physically small, he earns a reputation as a boy who can tame any horse. But otherwise, Ulysses isn't known for much. Grant, as a kid, showed no promise for anything. The local kids called him useless Grant rather than Ulysses Grant. According to military historian Harry Laver, Grant's father does not think much of the boy. His best chance, Jesse thinks, may be in the army. But I think his father thought, what am I going to do with Ulysses? And so his father is able to get Grant an appointment to West Point. But he'd applied apparently without Grant knowing. And so when the notice came of the appointment, his father says to Ulysses that um, you've got the appointment. And Grant's response was the appointment to what? He's well to West Point, you're going to West Point. But Grant does not want to be a soldier. He later writes, I would have been glad to have had a railroad collision or any other accident by which I might have received the temporary injury sufficient to make me ineligible to enter the academy. 
Nothing of the kind occurred, and I had to face the music. The initials U.S. Grant are actually a complete accident. Elizabeth D. Salmon is the editor of Grant's memoirs. She explains how the middle initial S was a clerical error made by West Point. Grant was actually born Hiram Ulysses Grant, but when he tries to explain the mistake West Point had made on his enrollment papers, the academy tells him to consider this his name from there on. When that name appears, his fellow cadets immediately start making nicknames: United States Grant, Uncle Sam Grant, and it's Sam that sticks with him. Despite his misgivings, within a year, Grant writes, "On the whole, I like this place very much." He soon makes friends, and many of these new friends will go on to lead the forces for the Confederacy. Almost all of the senior generals of the Civil War on both sides graduated from West Point. General David Petraeus describes how Grant's class at West Point includes so many of the men he will meet on the battlefield, both friend and foe. In the North, you had Sherman, you had McClellan, you had Sheridan and Meade. In the South, you had Stonewall Jackson, you had Longstreet, you had Jeb Stuart, you had Robert E. Lee. Lee was second in his class, one of the very rare cadets in history to have no demerits. Grant is not best among them. He was in the middle of his class, as he confessed later on. He mostly read novels. He later writes, "A military life had no charms for me, and I had not the faintest idea of staying in the army, even if I should graduate, which I did not expect." But he enjoys his classes in art and map making, and he is very good in math. And he excelled at horsemanship. He could tame seemingly any horse. But Grant is unlucky in his post-graduation assignment. Historian Barton A. Myers. Now, unfortunately for Grant, when he graduates, there were no spots in the U.S. cavalry, and so the best equestrian in that particular graduating class ended up in the infantry. Grant graduates in 1843 with the rank of brevet second lieutenant, and is assigned to the Fourth Infantry Regiment near St. Louis. His roommate at West Point had been a man named Frederick Dent, whose family lives just five miles from the barracks. Grant spends a great deal of time visiting Dent at his home, known as Whitehaven. The Dents own slaves. If Grant feels discomfort with it, he says nothing at the time. Grant's father, however, is vehemently anti-slavery, outspoken in his opinions, very much involved with the anti-slavery advocates of Ohio. But by his own admission, Grant himself is no abolitionist. Still, historian Caroline Janey says it would have been impossible for Grant to ignore the increasingly fraught divisions around him. Grant would have been well aware of the long simmering tensions between slaveholding and non-slaveholding states. At West Point, he was friends with slaveholding men, many who become some of his closest friends. Grant certainly was part of that tension. Grant has no intention of looking for a wife at this time. He is as surprised as anyone to find that he has fallen in love with Frederick's sister. Julia Dent. 
historian Avery Lenz. It's going to create some dilemmas for Grant. It's going to cause a lot of friction because Jesse Grant, anti-slavery, Frederick Dant, slave owner. The families are very much opposed. The relationship between Ulysses Grant and Julia Dent carries with it the nation's conflict. It's a lot of pressure on a budding romance. So the young couple decides on a secret engagement. They plan to approach Colonel Dent about marriage eventually. But before that is possible, Grant is called away to the Mexican-American War. Military historian Gregory Hospodor says once again, Grant does not get the job he had hoped for. The thing that led to the Mexican War was the westward expansion of the United States into Mexican territory with an incredibly aggressive foreign policy to unify the country all the way to California, which was a crown jewel on the West Coast. Mexico stood in the way. So the army marches in. Ulysses S. Grant is assigned as a quartermaster, that is a supply officer. Grant is a spectacular quartermaster, incredibly hands-on. But he is itching to get into combat. He is a 25-year-old West Point graduate who has an opportunity to make a name for himself. Grant writes to his superior in protest. To Brevet Colonel John Garland, I respectfully protest against being assigned to a duty which removes me from sharing in the dangers and honors of service with my company at the front and respectfully ask to be permitted to resume my place in line. Respectfully submitted, U.S. Grant, 2nd Lieutenant, 4th Infantry. Grant's request is rejected. But one day in May of 1846, volunteers are needed to rush ammunition to the front. Grant leaps at the opportunity. In the Mexican War, there's a very dramatic incident where Grant rides on the side of the horse using the horse as a shield as he rides a gauntlet of bullets to keep these men supplied in the middle of a battle. Combat reveals a new side of Grant. He discovers that in moments of extreme danger, he can be fearless. No crisis seems to rattle him. He writes to his friend John W. Lowe. You want to know when my feelings were on the field of battle? I do not know that I felt any peculiar sensation. War seems much less horrible to persons engaged in it than to those who read of the battles. It is on the battlefields of the Mexican-American War that Grant meets many of the soldiers he'll fight alongside and against in the years to come. That's where Grant met Robert E. Lee for the first time. Grant as a lower-level officer, but Lee as a major uh, staff officer. Lee is the hero during the war. Grant later reminds Lee of the meeting, claiming that Lee had made a strong impression on him at the time. Following his heroic debut in battle, Grant continues to distinguish himself and is promoted to captain. The Mexican War ends in 1848. We have gotten exactly what we want. Most of the American Southwest, roughly 500,000 square miles of territory, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And the question of whether that land would be slave or free, of course, would raise its ugly head pretty much every year after that, right up to 1861. In many ways, the completion of the United States from sea to shining sea 
leads directly to the American Civil War. He returns from war, still hoping to marry Julia Dent, but her father is not pleased with the prospect of their engagement. And Colonel Dent is not alone in his opposition to this match. Grant's abolitionist family is horrified to learn that he plans to marry into a slave-owning family. Despite their family's disapproval, Ulysses and Julia wed in August of 1848. Not a single member of the Grant family attends the wedding. The first years of that marriage are actually quite difficult. Grant is posted to the West Coast, to Fort Humboldt. Julia is expecting a child and is thus unable to go with him to the Pacific Northwest. So Grant goes alone to his new post, leaving his new bride, young son, and their unborn child at home outside St. Louis. The isolation and the loneliness take a toll on him. When he was separated from his family, he missed them terribly, especially Julia. And Fort Humboldt was an isolated, desolate place to be. So he really started to suffer significant melancholy. Grant's loneliness leads him to drink. It becomes enough of a problem that his commander, Lieutenant Colonel Robert C. Buchanan, warns him to resign or reform. Grant agrees. But soon after, Buchanan discovers him drinking again. This is where all the stories of Grant's drinking start. It became an easy thing for those who vilified him or wished to, to seize on. It became one of the running themes of his life. Grant resigns his post in 1854. With no income, position, or plan, his future is uncertain. Ben Kemp is a ranger at the Grant Cottage historic site. He describes Grant's return to Missouri. When Grant arrives back at Whitehaven, it must have been an absolutely surreal experience. He hadn't seen his wife, Julia, in two years. He hadn't seen his young son, Fred, in two years. And he had never even met his youngest son, Ulysses Jr., his namesake. Life in the Dent House is miserable for Grant. Julia's father remains convinced that she has married beneath her and makes sure Grant knows this. Colonel Doug Dowds of the U.S. Army War College tells how Grant becomes determined to establish his own home. Grant wants to be independent. He wants to get out of the main house, to get away from Colonel Dent. And so he builds hard scrabble on the 60 acres given by Colonel Dent to Julia. He's got to clear the land, clear the wood. He wants to have his family in their own home. That is the independent streak in him. Julia had absolute trust in her husband. He wasn't looking for fame, fortune. His ambitions centered on his family. He would say, you know my weaknesses, my horses and my children. Julia would describe the house they built as an unattractive cabin, but she makes every effort to make it home. Grant is now faced with the challenge of making a living. He tries farming, that doesn't work out so well. A year later, the Panic of 1857 wipes out Grant's farm, and many of his neighbors, too. He rents out hardscrabble, gives up farming, and moves back to the Dent family plantation. He tries a real estate business in St. Louis, but he's not really very good at collecting rent. He tries to get a job as a surveyor, and he isn't able to get that. 
He doesn't really know what to do. What's staring him in the face is poverty. I was now to commence at the age of 32 a new struggle for our support. Grant recounts in his memoirs. My wife had a farm near St. Louis to which we went, but I had no means to stock it. A house had to be built also. I worked very hard, never losing a day because of bad weather, and accomplished the object in a moderate way. I did not want to fly from one thing to another, but I was compelled to make a living for my family. If nothing else could be done, I would load a cord of wood and take it to the city for sale. Many people think that Grant selling firewood was beneath him. But the reality was, he was willing to do whatever it took to provide for his family. I think that's the core of Ulysses S. Grant. You will encounter hardships. You will encounter failures. But you've got to keep pushing. You've got to keep persevering. At one point, Grant asked his father for a loan. Jesse replies, son, so long as you make your home among a tribe of slave owners, I will do nothing. Military park ranger Avery Lentz says, the neighbors don't respect Grant's handling of the plantation slaves. One neighbor says, he couldn't force them to do anything. He was too gentle and too good-tempered. And besides, he was not a slave remain. He actually got ridiculed by some of his neighbors for being too nice to his wife's slaves, that he was not whipping them enough. Grant finds himself increasingly at odds with his wife's family. He's uncomfortable in his role as owner of the enslaved man, William Jones, who came to Hardscrabble from the Dents. Grant often works alongside him on the farm, another thing his neighbors jump to criticize. Grant remarks around this time, I don't know why black skin may not cover a true heart as well as a white one. Though he desperately needs the money he could earn from selling his one slave, he goes to the circuit court in St. Louis and frees William Jones in March of 1859. Author Tana Coates explains what that must have meant for Grant's situation. When you imagine Grant restoring freedom to an enslaved human, you, you have to imagine like walking away from your house. I hate to be that callous about it, but you have to imagine walking away from the greatest asset you could possibly have at a time when you're poor. You're not going to sell the house, you're going to walk away from it. Uh, it's a tremendous act of courage. It is around this time that a political party emerges with a different stance on slavery. Christy Coleman, executive director of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. And then this new political party surfaces, the Republicans and they have as their platform not the abolition of slavery, but to stop slavery from spreading to new territories of the United States. It becomes a decisive political moment. Historian Barton A. Myers. During that time, there's an idealistic visionary from the West beginning to emerge with a special kind of speaking ability who could translate a sort of folksy, homespun understanding of American affairs to the wider public. He becomes the Republican Party standard bearer in the election of 1860. And that man was Abraham Lincoln. Grant is inspired. He writes... I wanted to see Mr. Lincoln elected. Excitement ran high and torch-lit processions enlivened the street 
I still had hopes for the extreme pro-slavery sentiment to cool down, but I was mistaken. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Grant, like many Northerners, wonders what can be done to hold the Union together. Secession, he believes, would be a disaster. But in the South, there's a feeling of crisis. Here's Christy Coleman. The election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860 is a direct, direct assault on the South. The South is feeling completely under attack that the new government is going to come in and they're going to take away all their slaves. And we're not going to be a part of a country that isn't going to help preserve our way of life. Now we've gone and elected this guy from out in the middle of Illinois, this little know-nothing lawyer, and it's on. Almost from the moment the new president is sworn in, southern states begin to defect. Grant, whose grandfather fought at Bunker Hill during the Revolutionary War, is incensed. He writes, Whatever may have been my political opinions before, I have but one sentiment now. That is, we have a government and laws and a flag, and they must all be sustained. There are but two parties now, traitors and patriots, and I want hereafter to be ranked with the latter, and I trust the stronger party. Again, Colonel Doug Dowds. We don't see a lot of expressions of emotion from Grant until we talk about the South seceding, rebelling against the United States of America. This, this grinds at Ulysses S. Grant. He grows up listening about his relatives fighting in the revolution. And so he is very emotional about this idea of traitors. When Jefferson Davis is sworn in as Confederate president, Grant is so upset that he shakes his fist in the air and says, Davis and the whole gang of them ought to be hung. As Princeton historian Alan Gelzo tells us, Lincoln suddenly needs to raise an army capable of defending the Union. The United States government is desperate for anyone who's had any kind of military experience. Lincoln calls for 75,000 volunteers to suppress the rebellion. Back in Galena, Illinois, Grant is a friend, John Rawlins, who has received a commission from the governor to organize a regiment. The day after Lincoln's call to arms, John Rawlins gives a stirring speech at a recruitment meeting. Grant decides to join the fight. Beginning of the war, we have about 31 million people in the United States, about 21 million live in the North, about 10 million of them live in the South, but in the South, about 4 million of them are slaves. So it's really 6 million against 21 million. The South is 80% agricultural, but where do they grow? Tobacco, cotton, indigo, rice, corn. Well, you can only eat two of those. From people to manufacturing to technology, 
the North has all the advantages over the South. But that doesn't make it a foregone conclusion about who will win, because ultimately war is a clash of wills. And in this clash of wills, maybe, just maybe, the South would win. The North and the South both want the same man to lead their armies. The first name that comes to mind is Robert E. Lee of Virginia. Lee is offered the command of the Union Army, but ultimately decides that his allegiance is to Virginia and the South. The Union needs leaders capable of defeating someone of Lee's caliber. Rawlins wants someone with experience who has shown bravery in battle. He appoints Grant commander of one of the Illinois regiments. It's a new start for Grant's military career, his second chance. Now having this window of opportunity with this war to get back in the army to take command, he recognizes that I must seize it, and he does. General David Petraeus. Grant comes out of a series of failures in his civilian life. At one point, he has to literally sell his watch to buy Christmas presents for his wife and children. And now all of a sudden, he's back in uniform. Grant is nothing if not determined. He whips his new regiment into fighting shape. Here, at last, Grant shows that he's a natural leader. In the military, he was home again. There was something about the way he unsheathed his sword, the way he gave orders that people suddenly listened to and obeyed. Professor Harry Laver again. Very soon after the war began, Grant gets orders to take his men into Kentucky as much for political reasons as for military reasons. Kentucky is one of four slaveholding states bordering the South, but still siding precariously with the Union. Historian Gary Edelman says, Lincoln considers it crucial to keep Kentucky in the fold. He said, to lose Kentucky is nearly the same as to lose the whole game. He thought the other border states might follow suit as well. A Confederate army marched into Kentucky. So Grant moves as fast as he can to Paducah, Kentucky. It's immediately obvious to Grant how many in Paducah are pro-Confederacy. He knows he must win them over before taking any military action. Secession flags were flying through Paducah in anticipation of Southern troops. Grant writes, Our arrival, therefore, put quite a damp on their hopes. I addressed a short printed proclamation to the citizens of Paducah, assuring them of our peaceful intentions, that we had come among them to protect them against the enemies of our country. Grant has flyers posted around town with a message to the residents. Citizens of Paducah, I have come among you not as your enemy, but as your friend and fellow citizen, not to injure or annoy you, but to respect the rights and to defend and enforce the rights of all loyal citizens. Abraham Lincoln takes note. Lincoln right away saw that proclamation and recognized, here's a man who understands people and is plain spoken, just like me. Avery Lynn says, Grant's message works. Grant successfully occupied Paducah, Kentucky, without a shot being fired. And so he gets orders to attack a Confederate supply link on the Mississippi River at the small village of Belmont. Belmont is very important. It's Grant's first real test of combat in the Civil War. Grant moves his troops by riverboat to Belmont, Missouri. They surprise the Confederates and overrun their camp. 
the southern forces flee. The Confederates abandoned their camp, and these Union forces, these are guys who just fought their first battle. Very light casualties, and so they are euphoric at this point. But their celebration is premature. The scattered Confederate forces regroup and counterattack. Grant must retreat and escape. Here's military historian Harry Lather. He organized a fighting retreat north to the riverboats that were going to give them their means of escape. Grant was the last man to get on board ship. The boat had already untied and was starting to drift out into the river, and Grant actually rode his horse across the gangplank onto the riverboat. It was an amazing feat of horsemanship. And Grant, in his typical self-deprecating style, he gave all the credit to the horse. He made some serious mistakes. He lost control of his men, but he is learning. And coming out of the Battle of Belmont, he's looking for the next fight. The Civil War is being fought on two fronts. General David Petraeus explains. You have the Eastern Theater, where a series of different Union commanders prove incapable of really putting the pressure on the South that President Lincoln wants to see. And then you have the Western Theater, which is where Grant is. And in that Western Theater, the Union strategy is going to be to occupy key transportation facilities in the West, open up the entire Mississippi if they can. The waterways branching off the Mississippi River provide the Union with routes deep into Southern territory, says historian Gary Edelman. And it was rather simple to look on a map where the Confederate strong points were and see where the dominoes might fall. Grant could plainly see that the most obvious ones, the northernmost ones, were clearly Forts Henry and Donelson. They commanded key rivers, and he could use those key rivers to advance directly into the Confederacy. Grant is in favor of taking aggressive action, but his commander, General Henry Halleck, is more cautious. Historian Timothy B. Smith says the two men's instincts could not be more different. They call Halleck old brains. They don't call him that for nothing. He wants everything done absolutely by the book, and Grant is not a by-the-book kind of guy. No limelight, no fanfare, and forget the pomp and circumstance. We're just going to get it done. And so the two clash. Grant, with this bulldog mentality, immediately turns to what I call his naval soulmate, Andrew H. Foote, the naval commander of the Western Flotilla with ironclad gunboats. So Grant and Foote join forces. They propose to General Halleck that they move together against Fort Henry. They're begging Halleck, prodding Halleck, please turn us loose, let us go. And it's only by the slimmest margins that Halleck allows Grant to attack. So February the 6th, Foote's gunboats begin to shell Fort Henry. The infantry is going to get behind each fort, seal in the Confederate defenders, while the Navy just pummels Fort Henry into submission. Grant advances, but by the time they get to Fort Henry, the Navy's bombardment, along with the heavy rains that have almost flooded the fort, have weakened the Confederates. Most of the Confederates had already evacuated Fort Henry surrenders before Grant's men even get close to the fort. The capture of Fort Henry was significant, but Grant is not going to sit and rest on his laurels. Fort Donelson was only about 12 miles to the east. He keeps the ball moving. 
Grant's thinking, all I have to do is say boo and, and they'll surrender. And um, it doesn't really happen that way. Fort Donaldson was in a much better position, much better engineered than Fort Henry. An artillery duel began between the fort and his gunboats. And in short, the fort won. The Navy is forced to pull back. The Confederates came out of the fort to counterattack. And the first thing Grant does is not panic. That's a pattern with Grant. No matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, Grant doesn't panic. The Confederates surprise Grant's army from their right flank. In the midst of the battle, Grant keeps his wits about him, and it pays off. He rallies his troops and defends their position. The Confederates withdrew back into the fort, and they're trapped. When Grant got the message, hey, I want to talk about surrender, the Confederate command situation at Fort Donelson had been an absolute comedy of errors. There had been three general officers inside Fort Donelson, John Floyd, Gideon Pilla, and Grant's old friend, Simon Bolivar Buckner. Floyd and Pillow both decide to flee, leaving Buckner in charge. Grant knows Buckner well. They had been at West Point at the same time and served together afterwards. The surrender is cordial. Grant writes, In the course of our conversation, which was very friendly, he said to me that if he had been in command, I would not have got up to Donaldson as easily as I did. I told him that if he had been in command, I should not have tried in the way I did. Arthur Joan Waugh says this victory gives the Union the first turning point in the war. The first real victory for the United States occurred at Fort Donelson in February of 1862, courtesy of Ulysses S. Grant, U.S. Grant. Useless Grant became unconditional surrender of Grant and that thrilled the northern population. It was big news because nothing good had been happening for the Union in the war. President Lincoln is thrilled. Until now, he felt stymied by overcautious commanders in the eastern theater of the war. He immediately signs the order promoting Grant to Major General. If there's a rookie of the year for the Union side, it's Ulysses S. Grant. Nobody's winning the victories like he is. Grant has captured the first of three armies that he will capture over the course of the war. And he has now opened the Cumberland River so Union naval forces and land forces can make their way south deep into the Confederacy. Grant is already strategizing, looking ahead. He writes to his wife, Julia, of his plans. Dear Julia, soon I hope to move from here. And when I do, there will probably be the greatest battle fought of the war. I have no doubt of the result. The enemy was in force at Corinth, the junction of the two most important railroads in the Mississippi Valley, one connecting Memphis and the Mississippi River with the east, and the other leading south to all the cotton states. If we obtain possession of Corinth, the enemy would have no railroad for the transportation of armies or supplies. Pittsburgh Landing is a staging area to attack at Corinth. General Halleck warns Grant, don't bring on an engagement, don't start anything, don't pick a fight until everything is ready. The Army had arrived with one of Grant's corps commanders, William Becomes Sherman. 
Sherman was a friend of Grant's at West Point, but they had not worked together before, and many of Grant's men were absolutely green. Some had just received their weapons a few days earlier. So Grant's intention is to get his men some training and wait there for another Union army under the command of Don Carlos Buell to get there and then set out to Corinth. So the idea of fighting a battle never enters Grant's mind at Pittsburgh Landing. And uh, the scene is set for what would become this bloodbath of Shiloh. Shiloh, the battle that would kill more men on American soil than any before it. Next time on Making Grant. If Pittsburgh Landing falls, Grant knows his army is gone. Grant was determined to stay and fight. Everything he's learned came into play in making that decision. That's the point where Grant becomes Grant. Shiloh is incredibly important as the place where our country woke up to the reality of what it had signed up for. It was as if from the battlefield, a metaphorical postcard went home to America and it said with a picture of the dead, this is what you've signed up for. Making Grant is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Galen Mullins edited and mixed this episode with assistance from Max Miller. Grant was originally produced for television by Radical Media for the History Channel. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.